Welcome to the No-Till Farmer Podcast, brought to you today by BioTill Cover Crop Seed. I'm Julia Gerlach, Executive Editor for No-Till Farmer. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank BioTill Cover Crop Seed for sponsoring today's episode. BioTel Cover Crops, a pioneer and leader in cover crop seed, represents a complete lineup of seeds suitable to a wide range of soil types and growing conditions. BioTil Cover Crop vendors are committed to your success and provide local resources, education, guidance, and tips and tricks to ensure your plantings have the correct foundations for success. The original producers of Bounty Annual Ryegrass, BioTil Cover Crops, continues to add new and improved cover crop and forage varieties, including Enricher Radish, Bayou Kale, Shield Broadleaf Mustard, African Forage Cabbage, and Mihi Persian Clover. With over 30 years of experience in production, processing, packaging, and shipping, you won't be able to find a better fit for your farm anywhere else. Learn more at biotill.com. That's B-I-O-T-I-L-L.com. Many activists for sustainable farming envision a future of small, local, and highly labor-intensive farms rather than today's commercial agriculture operations. But if the goal is to protect the soil and the environment, larger and more specialized farms are in a better position to do so than smaller ones, argues Robert Parlberg, associate at the Sustainability Science Program at the Harvard Kennedy School and author of Resetting the Table, Straight Talk About the Food We Grow and Eat. He says it would be a mistake to rewind to the farming practices of the mid-1900s and forgo the technological advancements of recent years. Parlberg will be speaking at the 2022 National Strip Tillage Conference, and for this episode of the No-Till Farmer podcast brought to you by Biotill Cover Crop Seed, he's giving us a preview of that presentation. Listen in as Associate Editor Michaela Pockner chats with Parlberg about the research that went into his book, his advice to commercial farmers and farm organizations about advocating for their practices, what those groups need to do to combat the myths surrounding sustainable agriculture, and more. I got interested in agriculture and agricultural policy because uh, my dad grew up on a, a farm in Indiana, in Lake County, Indiana, during the Depression. Uh, not an easy time to be farming. Then he went on and got a PhD in agricultural economics eventually. He went to Purdue University and then to Cornell. He taught agricultural economics at Purdue and then became a senior government official in the agricultural field. So I found his work to be very interesting. And although I only worked on my uncle's farm in the summer times off and on, I thought that learning a little bit more about agriculture and international food and agriculture could make a good career for me. I went into political science and international relations instead of agricultural economics, but I had an advantage because I'd grown up with a lot of agricultural economists. I could understand their language, and so they were willing to include me in in their activities. In the academic world, agricultural economists tend to dominate um, agricultural policy, and if you if you can't speak their language, you're liable to be excluded. So, yeah, like you said, that's a huge advantage to be able to bring another perspective to the table. Yes. Uh, very few political scientists study agricultural policy. So when uh, when the economists are looking around for someone to talk to them about political institutions and public policy, uh, they stumble across me. And I'm uh, I'm usually uh, at the table more often than other political scientists would be. 
So throughout your career, what has been some of the scope of your research that you've done? I've actually written 10 books, and some of them grew out of the research and consulting I did with with organizations like the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the International Food Policy Research Institute, and the U.S. Agency for International Development, uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Some just grew out of my own interests, and the research was funded by my uh, academic institutions. That was Wellesley College originally, and then more recently, Harvard University. The first book I ever wrote was about food power. It was about the use of embargoes, like the grain embargo that Jimmy Carter announced back in 1980 to try to punish the Soviet Union for invading Afghanistan. And now we're trying to punish the, the Russians with various sanctions. So it's interesting how these topics come around again. I did a book on the reform of U.S. agricultural policy with Chicago University Press. Then I started working on biotechnology. I did a book on the regulation of genetically engineered crops in developing uh, countries. Then I did a book on agriculture in uh, Africa. I uh, uh, have worked in a dozen or so countries in Africa over the years, and half a dozen in Asia, half a dozen in, in Latin America. I looked at, at the particular challenges facing smallholder farmers in Africa. I, I did a book that compared the the problem that the United States has with excess fossil fuel consumption to the problem the United States has with excess food consumption. The United States has obesity rates that are roughly twice as high as on the continent of Europe, and our per capita fossil fuel consumption is also roughly twice as high. So I wrote a book to try to uh, explain all that. I wrote a book that was mostly a textbook uh, called Food Politics, What Everyone Needs to Know, and it's still being assigned to, to undergraduates uh, here and there. Uh, and my, my most recent book uh, was an attempt to write for a wider audience. This is not designed for academic specialists. It's done through a, a trade publisher, Alfred Knopf in New York. And it, it was uh, my attempt to uh, respond to the charge that our food system is completely broken. I, I don't think it is. I think part of our food system is badly broken. That's the food manufacturing companies that turn healthy products that come from our farms into obesity-inducing, virtually addictive, ultra-processed products loaded up with too much salt, sugar, and fat. But I don't think commercial agriculture in the United States is, is the source of our dietary health problems. And that book is Resetting the Table, correct? Yes, that's right. That's my latest book. It, uh, it just came out a year ago. Okay. So you're joining us at the 2022 National Strip Tillage Conference in July to talk about some of the research and things that you've discovered when you were writing the book, Resetting the Table. Um, can you introduce the book, some of the themes that are in it, and what you've learned as you've been writing it? Yes. Yeah, so as I say, I wrote the book because I got tired of reading complaints from journalists and activists that were saying, our food system is completely broken. And they, they usually say these problems start on the farm. They complain about today's large, specialized, capital-intensive farms. They advocate a return to small, local, diversified, and even organic farms. But uh, in my book, I say it'd be a mistake to, uh, to turn back the clock on modern commercial farming. I agree that the critics that our food system is broken, especially 
in terms of dietary health. We face a dietary health crisis in the United States today. 42% of adults in the United States are clinically obese. We have uh, serious problems with diabetes, uh, heart attack, stroke, and cancer linked to obesity. Obesity-related diseases kill 300,000 Americans um, a year. We consume too little fruits and vegetables. Only one in 10 Americans consumes the recommended daily helpings of fruits and vegetables while we consume too much meat. These are serious uh, problems, but I, I don't say they start with our farming system. They originate with the food manufacturing companies that take the healthy products grown by our farmers and uh, ultra-process them and add too much salt, sugar, and fat. They do that intentionally. They put those ingredients together in carefully designed combinations to ensure that these foods will become virtually addictive, uh, to ensure that they hit a, a bliss point, it's called, in our mouth. It, it triggers the reward circuit in our brain and makes us want to uh, crave those foods again, even when we're not really hungry. Uh, I also include uh, our restaurant chains in, in doing these things, and that includes uh, casual dining restaurants, not just fast food restaurants. So I spend a lot of time on, on our dietary health problems. I look at commercial agriculture uh, overall, and I look at the, the charge that it's environmentally unsustainable. I don't think that that charge can be fairly made these days. People who make that charge are working with a, an outdated notion of what commercial agriculture looks like in the United States. They're thinking about the farms we had 40 years ago that did use too much energy, and too much land, too many chemicals, resulting in too much uh, soil erosion and too many greenhouse gas emissions for every bushel that was produced. But uh, thanks to the technical changes that have been made, including um, everything from drip irrigation to conservation tillage practices to uh, GPS positioning, digital soil mapping, uh, the use of variable rate input applications, robotics, drones. So many innovations have brought much greater precision uh, to farming, and the result is a much lighter use of, of inputs for every bushel that's produced. Most, most of my students out here in Massachusetts think that um, corn production is terribly wasteful. It wastes energy, it uses too much land, too much irrigation water, it, it sends out too many greenhouse gas emissions. But if you look at corn production today compared to, to 1980, for each bushel of production, we use 30% less land, there's 67% less soil erosion, there's 53% less irrigation water applied, 43% less energy use, and 36% fewer greenhouse gas emissions. We've really become green through the use of much more sophisticated information-intensive rather than resource-intensive um, production technologies. The farmers who are listening to this, the strip tillers and many no-till as well, they know these kinds of things, but it sounds like the struggle is getting the public to be aware of all the things that they're doing to produce the amount of food that we need while also protecting the environment. So what would you say are some things that the individual farmer can do to combat that myth that we need to go back to this labor-intensive small farms in order to be sustainable? 
Well, that's a hard question. Hard to think of what one individual farmer can do. And from the vantage point of those who think modern farming is unsustainable, probably the missing bit of information that they have is how much more food is being produced today. And the United States is producing three times as much in its agricultural sector as it did in 1948, three times as much. And so it's almost inevitable that significant environmental damage continues to be done and we need to improve farming. But what the critics need to imagine is how much more damage would be done if we tried to triple production using the the antiquated methods of, of 1948. We'd have to triple land use. <laughs> we would use far more energy, uh, far more irrigation water would have to be applied. There'd be far more soil erosion. It, it's a counterfactual. It's something that people have to work hard to imagine. What would things look like if we produced today's quantity of food using yesterday's methods? But um, you have to somehow show them those realities. And what, what I do, I'm here in Massachusetts, and we have a lot of farms in New England, um, but they don't produce very much food. And people in New England love these small, local, organic farms that that sell produce in a roadside stand or at a farmer's market in the summer months. And, and when you visit the farm, it's beautiful. They have a diverse mixture of crops, and they have goats and sheep and chickens and a few pigs. It just looks lovely. And, and these are friendly, smart, uh, agreeable people. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful uh, summer treat to visit these farms. But most of my students think that this is the way all agriculture should look. But they don't realize how little, farm these, how little food these farms produce. In my book, I point out that if you look at the farm sales made by all of the farms, large and small, in all of New England, and that includes Rhode Island, Connecticut, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Vermont, and Maine, those represent only 1% of the total farm sales made every year in the United States. So this is a lifestyle. It, it makes summer vacations in New England enjoyable, but it's not a way to provision uh, the food needs of a modern society. I also thought in your book, in the beginning of it, when you gave the example of the farmers you worked with in Uganda, where here are these people doing everything by hand and the way that a lot of people think we should go back to to be sustainable, yet they're having trouble still feeding their kids too. So it was a really good example for me to kind of picture the gains that we've made with commercial agriculture and how that's necessary to our food production. Yes, I, I work in Africa, and I'm always uh, disturbed to see how little progress uh, smallholder farmers in Africa have made. And it's because they don't have any of the things that successful commercial farmers in the rest of the world have used to boost their productivity, the, the productivity of their labor in particular, and to escape poverty. They don't have they don't have uh, purchased fertilizers. Uh, they can't afford fertilizer. They don't have a, a good road system uh, to either get their products out to the market or to bring inputs like fertilizer in at an affordable price. Most smallholder farmers in Africa live 
more than two kilometers from the nearest all-weather road. So their household transport consists of carrying things. They don't have veterinary medicine for their for their animals. They don't have electricity. They don't have irrigation. Only a tiny percentage of farms in Africa are irrigated. Uh, they don't have good rural clinics. They don't have good rural schools. These farmers are, are living in a, a poverty trap. They're essentially cut off from modern technologies and from the commercial markets that they need to use to um, increase their their income. And and it's an irony because they can't afford fertilizer or pesticides. They're de facto organic because their road system is so poor. Food doesn't move around very much. So their food system is de facto local. Uh, and people in the United States, some say we should move from fast food to back to slow food, but they should go to Africa and see how much time it takes uh, women in Africa, and most farmers in Africa are women, how long it takes them um, not just to, to plant and harvest their their maize crop, but to then strip the ears and soak them and, and shell them and dry them and pound them, and then finally uh, cook them over a handmade fire into some porridge for their family. It's, it, it takes uh, more time than anyone would want to spend. And at the end of, at the end of all those efforts, uh, a significant portion of their children are still chronically malnourished because the food supply is so, is so scant. We'll get back to the podcast in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Biotill Cover Crop Seed, for supporting today's episode. Biotill Cover Crops, a pioneer and leader in cover crop seed, represents a complete lineup of seeds suitable to a wide range of soil types and growing conditions. Biotill Cover Crop vendors are committed to your success and provide local resources, education, guidance, and tips and tricks to ensure your plantings have the correct foundations for success. The original producers of Bounty Annual Ryegrass, Biotill Cover Crops continues to add new and improved cover crop and forage varieties, including Enricher Radish, Bayou Kale, Shield Broadleaf Mustard, African Forage Cabbage, and Mihi Persian Clover. With over 30 years of experience in production, processing, packaging, and shipping, you won't be able to find a better fit for your farm anywhere else. Learn more at Biotill.com. That's B-I-O-T-I-L-L.com. And now, back to the podcast. In the book, you're making the case that larger and more specialized farms can do a better job of protecting the environment than those types of small and labor-intensive farms that a lot of sustainable farming advocates are envisioning. We've kind of talked about this already, but why is that that these larger farms will do a better job of that? Well, a lot of the precision agriculture applications that are doing the most to protect the environment uh, require sophisticated skills and uh, expensive machinery. Uh, and expensive machinery doesn't pay off on a small farm. It only pays off if you have a large farm. The, the leading uh, adopters of, for example, variable rate technologies, variable rate application technologies, and GPS positioning, uh, and soil mapping, digital soil mapping, are the larger farms. And uh, if we had a nation of small farms, the adoption of those improved methods would would, would lag well behind uh, where it is 
today. Everyone complains, oh, well, we have a large farm model. 85% of what we produce is being produced by just the 7% of farms that are the largest. And that's true. Uh, but the fact that 85% of what we produce is coming from large, highly capitalized farms gives us an advantage in the uptake of uh, these greenest technologies, technologies that use uh, the fewest uh, resources per bushel of production and use those resources with the greatest precision. It's hard to make that case uh, to people who've been told their whole life that uh, we should have uh, the countryside should be filled with a lot of small, local, uh, diverse, traditional farms. People don't realize that our large commercial farms are almost entirely family-owned. They're, they're, they don't look like the old, small, local, diverse family farms of the 1920s, but uh, they're still, for the most part, uh, family-owned. And speaking of those large farms having the capital to adopt these things. I think of all that we're hearing right now about autonomous tractors and autonomous machines that can take on even more of the work and while reducing compaction and offering all these other benefits and how it's going to be an expensive practice to adopt, but it could be something that is really good for the environment in general. Uh, yes. Yeah. There's a chapter in my book, that looks at, at robotics. I don't talk about autonomous tractors, but I talk about a lot of robotic and autonomous equipment, especially uh, for harvesting uh, specialty crops, strawberries, for example, lettuce. The, these robotic technologies are, it's, it's like the rest of our economy. The great thing about agriculture, in my view, is that it's becoming a little easier to understand because it's looking a lot more than in the past like the rest of our economy. Uh, the rest of our economy is going digital. Well, so is agriculture. Uh, the rest of our economy is highly capitalized, large scale and specialized. Well, so is agriculture. And these robotic technologies, like robots on the factory floor, can work 24 hours a day. They don't need a lunch break. A lot of autonomous farm equipment and robotic farm equipment works in the dark. It's no problem. The agricultural uh, population of the past, the farm labor force of the past has already mostly left farming. And the result of that was higher incomes for those who left and took higher paid work um, in town and also higher incomes for those who remain behind. So I'm not, I'm not troubled by, by that trend. Like the rest of the economy, uh, the most advanced segments of the rest of the economy are also finding ways to replace labor. Of course, what that means is you have to make adequate investments in in the skill level of of your workforce. You need to make adequate investments in education and in training so that uh, those who leave agriculture or those who, who leave farm labor, for example, those who are picking strawberries in California today who might be displaced by robotic pickers, you have to make sure that they have the educational attainment they need to get uh, a good employment off the farm, which is what most of them want. There are not a lot of Mexican strawberry pickers in California who dream that their children will be doing that 30 years from now. They know that uh, there's better work out there and they want, in agriculture, there's better work out there and they want their children to qualify. Mm -hmm. The epilogue of your book, Resetting the Table, is titled Straight Talk to Commercial Farmers. 
And in that section, you're arguing that commercial farming organizations should advocate for reforms to promote dietary health. So what kinds of organizations should be doing that and what should they be doing? I make this argument because I've noticed as concerns with dietary health have increased. Too many people blame our poor dietary health on on farming and not on the food manufacturing companies that I think are primarily to blame. But then when I go to big meetings, whether it's a Farm Foundation meeting or a Farm Bureau Association meeting, I see representatives of the food industry there. They usually have a slot among the speakers, and they describe themselves as partners with America's farmers. They say, we're the link between farmers and the American consumer. And the agricultural organizations in the audience don't seem to understand how dangerous that is if these food manufacturing companies get away with using the popularity of farmers as political cover, when the companies are criticized in the years ahead, the farmers are going to be criticized too. And farmers are already being criticized for our poor diets, unfairly. We're told that uh, that farm subsidies are making us fat. That's absolutely not true. We're told that the products we, we grow are making us fat, and that's not true uh, either. But until farmers are willing to stand up and endorse improvements in dietary health, even if that means criticizing the food companies that are giving us all of these unhealthy products, the sooner that happens, I think that the sooner farmers will be protected from the criticism that's otherwise coming their way. Uh, I noticed, for example, during the, uh, the 2010 debate in Congress over the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act that reformed school lunch menus. I think that was a good law. Uh, And I thought that farm organizations should get behind it and endorse it. Uh, But instead, every little commodity group that thought they might lose something fought against it, whether it was potato growers who who wanted to keep French fries on the menu uh, or, or, or tomato producers who wanted tomato sauce on pizza to be considered a vegetable. I thought that was, um, it was so conspicuously self-serving and so indifferent to the dietary health of America's school children. I thought, I thought those organizations missed an opportunity. I also thought they missed an opportunity by not getting on board uh, Michelle Obama's Let's Move program, uh, which focused specifically on a childhood obesity. Um, I, you know, here it's funny because even the big food manufacturing companies endorsed that, even though they were at the source of, uh, of most of the problems. <laughs> but why, why wouldn't, why wouldn't farm organizations be ready to, to stand up and, and agree in principle that uh, dietary health is a, a serious concern and we want to do something about it? I mean, I, I studied Uh, the SNAP program that was renewed in the 2018 Farm Bill. And the American Heart Association and a few other public health organizations thought we should should at least have a pilot program to see what the health benefits might be if we removed uh, sugar-sweetened beverages from eligibility for purchase under uh, the SNAP program. And uh, I I thought that was something farm organizations could... uh, could get on board with. The total dollar value of the SNAP program wouldn't go down one dollar. So uh, you'd just be telling people if they wanted to drink sugary beverages, they'd have to pay for it out of their own pocket rather than at the expense of the taxpayer. But not a single farm organization had anything uh, good to say about even that even that pilot program, 
which was only designed to to get better information on what the health benefits might be. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that these organizations aren't standing up and taking the side of the healthy option instead of the unhealthy option? Now, there are a couple of reasons, and, and I look forward to being at the meeting in July, maybe to get um, thoughts of, of farmers who, who know this from a different angle and they know it personally and, and, and up close. Uh, one, one reason is the traditional relationship between commodity producers and food manufacturing companies. The food manufacturing companies are, are your, your primary customer. They're not the ultimate customer, but they're the primary customer. Most of them are located out in farm country in the Midwestern part of the U.S., and so there's a cultural affinity with these food manufacturing companies. Um, uh, also, farmers notice that, well, these food companies are being criticized by food movement activists, and we farmers are also being criticized by food movement activists. So so maybe these are our natural allies, and we should join together with them to fight back against the food movement activists. So I think that's, as I say, a, a dangerous strategy. There's another reason, and, and for this I, I can't entirely blame farmers. Our political system now is polarized politically. Most uh, most food movement activists, of course, and most people who are promoting dietary health uh, identify more with the Democratic Party than with the Republican Party. Uh, meanwhile, uh, most farmers and and the executives in most food manufacturing companies uh, identify primarily with the Republican Party. So there's a it's it's politically awkward for commercial farmers and farm organizations who identify with the Republican Party to reach across the aisle and look for ways to work with the American Heart Association, for example, which, uh, like most public health organizations, is more comfortable working with Democrats. And what do you think needs to happen to get farm organizations aligning themselves with the more dietary helpful side of things? Well, uh, it's frustrating because farmers and farm organizations wouldn't have to change the way they farm to do that. Um, All they'd have to do is uh, start paying a little more attention uh, to the the health concerns of public health and and dietary health and consumer advocates. Right now, farmers say, well, we're, we're giving you safe food, and it is safe when it leaves the farm. We're giving you affordable food, and it is more affordable than ever before. Um, but safe and affordable isn't – that's the old story. We solved those problems a long time ago. What we now need is uh, foods reaching consumers that um, aren't obesity-inducing because because they have too much salt, sugar, and fat. And to uh, to, to listen to those concerns and change the standard uh, – uh, recital of uh, the good things farms are doing for consumers uh, neglects uh, the real source of the trouble, which is, I think, that the dangerous things food companies are doing to the products of farms. Mm-hmm. And, and what's interesting also is these food companies are not 10 feet tall. Uh, they're under a lot of pressure now from from consumers to clean up their labels, to get mysterious ingredients out of the products, to reduce added sugars to reduce the ultra-processing. They're coming under the gun. Uh, so uh, you can't look at them as a source of protection anymore. Uh, right. They're going to be just as vulnerable as commercial farmers. And unless you can 
create some political space between you and these food companies, you'll, you risk going down with them. And was there anything else you wanted to talk about today that you haven't mentioned? My book just won a prize. It, it was given a, a gold award by the uh, Nautilus Book Award Organization, which runs an, an international competition. And, uh, and my book won in the category for green sustainability. So um, that maybe that will give me some political cover. <laughs> from those who think that uh, my praise for commercial agriculture ignores environmental concerns. Well, congratulations on the award. And it is, like you said, it's interesting how it's been polarized to want healthy food and food that is produced in a way that's good for the environment and ultimately everybody. Hopefully you can help bring some people together. I hope so. I'll give it a try. Thanks to Rob Parlberg for sharing his thoughts on sustainable agriculture. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Biotill Covercrop Seed, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland no-tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at no-till farmer with farmer's belt F-A-R-M-R and our no-till farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at no-till farmer, I'm Julia Gerlach. Thanks for tuning in.